Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, October 13th, 2023. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Executive Editor, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Sir Can of BookScan data is out this week and is tracking 2023 print sales down compared to 2022. Yeah, so the first three quarters of the year are in the books and sales are indeed down compared to last year by a pretty hefty margin, about 4.1%. This, as you know, according to Atlas, the report to Circana BookScan. Uh, basically, the third quarter was a quarter to forget. Uh, it saw book sales drop 6.7%. And that accelerated the yearly decline. So for the first half of 2023, I think we were down 2.7%. Now, after the first three quarters of the year, we're down 4.1%. Uh, my boss, Jim Millia, broke down the sales. You could read his report on the PW site. Uh, suffice it to say, it was pretty much bad across the board. Uh, sales in the third quarter fell in every major category, with the most notable development being uh, third quarter swoon in adult fiction, where sales dropped 7.6%, and that left it down just a little bit, 0.2% for the first months of uh, the year compared to 2022. And I think that's notable because fiction has been such a bright spot for years. Uh, after a period earlier in the decade where fiction was in decline, which of course is something no one wants to see again. Sales in adult nonfiction dropped 4.5% in the quarter, which is slightly better than how the category performed in the first half of 2023. Uh, adult nonfiction does have the best-selling book of the year, we should note. That would be Spare by Prince Harry, which has sold just over 1.2 million copies. And, and taking a longer view, you know, sales are still up 3% over 2020 and almost 11% over the 2019 levels, which is really the benchmark here, I think. And, and considering that annual sales in the publishing industry might normally rise, if they rise at all, by 2% maybe a year, the industry is still built up, you know, they've still banked kind of a couple of years of growth from where we might otherwise have expected to be, uh, even though we're giving back a good amount of that pandemic growth. And we should note that publishers are also feeling pretty good about the fourth quarter. We're hearing that there's a lot of strong titles in the can ready to come out in the coming months. They're expecting a decent holiday season. But of course, this is all going to depend on things outside the publishing industry's control, mainly consumer confidence and whatever economic headwinds there, there may be. Uh, in a note this week, Sir Countess Kristen McLean predicted that if sales remain in their current expected pattern, we're on pace for the book market to be off by about 5% for the year, which is not great, but not a disaster either, given all the economic uncertainty out there. On Tuesday, Andrew, Wiley CEO Brian Napak stepped down. Big news there too, right? Wiley is a $2 billion company and in the middle of a serious retrenchment. Uh, and now we have uh, CEO Brian Napak leaving. Uh, officially, Napak resigned. But it's curious, there was no statement from him in the announcement, and I wish I had some. I don't have any backstory here about what, what prompted this. But I think we can infer that NAPAC isn't leaving for the usual like new challenges or to spend more time with family, right? NAPAC was also very visible in the industry, right? He was chair of the AAP board, for example, and pretty well-respected. And like I said, they were deep into a restructuring of the company that he was leading after a disappointing financial year last year. Uh, and of course, the market is facing a host of longer term challenges as well. In fact, to be fair, 
I can't think of a more challenging business in the learning market right now or education publishing. And I think it's hard to look at Wiley's results in you know, the last year and its plans going forward and think that any shortcomings there are on NAPAC. But, you know, look, at the end of the day, it's, it's always the leader who falls when things don't go as planned. As for what's next for Wiley, Matthew Kistner has been named interim CEO effective immediately. This is the second time that Kistner has stepped in as interim CEO at Wiley, the first time uh, taking over that role prior to NAPAC's appointment six years ago in 2017. Kistner previously served as Wiley Group Executive and Board Chair. Kistner will now oversee a restructuring that Wiley official this summer uh, detailed. Basically, they're going to streamline the company and focus on research and learning uh, and in the process, they announced their intent to sell a number of businesses that generated a lot of revenue, about $400 million, which was about 9% of Wiley's you know, $2 billion in revenue in the fiscal year that just ended in April 30th. And in a June investor call that I was on, Brian Napak did not sound like a man who was making other plans, right? He conceded that fiscal 2023 did not play out as the company expected. But he sounded a positive note for the future. You know, a simpler Wiley is a better Wiley, he said, adding that the company expected its restructuring and right-sizing plan to start showing benefits later in fiscal 2024 and you know, to be fully realized in 2025 and 2026 and beyond. But whatever comes next for Wiley, it's not going to happen without Brian Napak. And I think that's a real surprise. And I think we'll be waiting to see if there is, in fact, more to this story. Also leaving a prominent leadership role is Tracy D. Hall, Executive Director at the American Library Association. Yeah, this is another surprise departure. Tracy D. Hall resigned from her position on October 6th, bringing a really sudden end to her tenure after what has been, you know, to put it mildly, a challenging four years for the organization. Uh, in a statement, ALA thanked Hall for her work and they praised her leadership but I have to say there have been some rumbles about that leadership in recent months, and it's worth noting that ALA has lost a lot of key personnel in recent years under unexplained circumstances, shall we say, people who just kind of up and quit and never really said anything more about it. So we'll see if there's more to develop to this story as well. But I guess what I'll point out for now is that ALA did not have an interim in place as of this writing, at least they have not had an interim in place. So the question remains, who's running the organization right now? I'll also point out that the announcement came in the middle of Banned Books Week, which is, of course, a very important week for the ALA, given all that's going on. And, you know, librarians have been telling me, and, and I have to agree, come on, this couldn't wait a few days. It couldn't wait a week. You know, librarians were telling me last week that, you know, this was not a headline that ALA should have had during Banned Books Week, during this major week when the headlines really should have been all on the librarians doing the work on the front lines. Uh, in fairness, Tracy Hall's tenure came during what has to be one of the most challenging periods in the organization's history. She took the role in January of 2020. She was the first female African-American executive director in the association's long history. And then just days after taking the job, it was revealed that the association was facing a serious financial shortfall. Just weeks later, the nation went into lockdown in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And that, of course, forced libraries to shutter. It put library workers in danger in many places. And, of course, it forced the ALA to cancel its in-person conferences for ne nearly three years, during which time libraries and librarians also became targets in this coordinated political movement to ban books. Now, on that score, 
Tracy Hall was an excellent and very visible spokesperson for the freedom to read. Uh, Tracy became well-known for her mantra, free people read freely. She also racked up a ton of awards and accolades over the last three years. Uh, but at the same time, ALA has now become the target of political groups, right? There are political ta- attacks on the organization, characterizing it as a woke Marxist group that's seeking to sexualize your children. So whoever takes the job going forward is going to have a number of challenges to deal with going forward, that being among them. Uh, anyway, yes, major questions now for ALA as they once again search for a new leader and what I think really is sort of a crucible moment for the organization. An appeal of an injunction ordered on the Texas State Book Rating Law, HB 900, now has a court date, Andrew, but a puzzling decision in the case by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals means the law is in effect and could be in effect for some time, despite being found unconstitutional. This is really puzzling stuff out of Texas. As you say, it concerns the state's new book rating law, HB 900, which... You're right. It's in effect. Despite being found unconstitutional by district court, the law now is in effect. And I'll try to explain what's going on here. Uh, So first and foremost, you noted there's some dates. Uh, The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit has set an expedited schedule to hear the state's appeal of federal judge Alan D. Albright's August 31 decision to enjoin the law. Uh, We've talked about that decision quite a bit in this program. And of course, this is the law that would force book vendors in Texas to rate books for sexual content or face being barred from selling books to Texas public schools. So the court will hear the state's challenge to Albright's injunction on November 29th. And that's an expedited date. But here's the problem. The appeals court has also punted the question of whether Albright's injunction should be stayed. Now, our listeners may recall, Albright denied the state's motion for a stay of his injunction when he issued it on October 31. So ostensibly, that injunction was to be in effect and the law was to be blocked as of August 31. But the state then appealed on an emergency basis to the Fifth Circuit. And in response, the Fifth Circuit issued what's called an administrative stay, which is not based on the merits at all. It's a very pro forma decision. Administrative stays in most courts are pretty common. They're used to like, you know, maintain the status quo until an appellate court can more fully consider arguments for emergency relief. And the challenge over the denial of a stay is now fully briefed, right? The state has their brief in, the the plaintiffs have their reply brief in. Yet rather than lift the administrative stay, which again was not based on the merits, and you know, hear the appeal for a stay through with based on the merits, the court instead, on October 5th, decided that it was going to put off the state's motion to stay the injunction and hear it along with the, the, the challenge on the merits for November 29th. But by leaving that administrative stay in place, they've basically given the state its stay, right? They've allowed the law to remain in effect, and they've blocked Albright's injunction from taking hold here. So on one hand, you can understand why the court would want to hear the motion for the stay and the motion to challenging the injunction on the merits at the same time, because they're basically the same argument, right? The state's argument is pretty much identical for both the stay and why the injunction should be vacated. But what no one seems to understand is why leave the administrative stay in place? Remember, this is not based on the merits of the case. I'll say it again. Thus, the Fifth Circuit's administrative stay has effectively mooted the emergency relief that the plaintiffs had sought and won from the district court. Now, remember, this case was pushed quickly along. It was filed on June 25th, and it was blocked 
on August 31st, right under the wire the, to stop this law from taking effect on September 1, as was, was written into the law. In suing to block the law, the plaintiffs had sought this quick action because they said the law was blatantly unconstitutional and it would impose this untenable burden on them. And after two hearings, Judge Albright agreed. He found HB 900, and I'll quote his decision here, to be a web of unconstitutionally vague requirements with, and again, and I'll quote him again, burdens so numerous and onerous as to call into question whether the legislature believed any third party could possibly comply. But now, here we are, the appeals court, again, without hearing this on the merits, has issued this administrative stay that has allowed the law to take effect, and that has really left booksellers and librarians in a precarious position. In fact, the very same position they had successfully litigated to avoid. It is just a bizarre circumstance. Now, the court could conceivably act quickly after hearing oral arguments in the case, but that's at least six weeks away from being heard. And the prospect of the law remaining in effect well into the new year, perhaps longer if they decide to vacate the injunction, now has to loom pretty large. And I'll remind listeners that at press time, the court has yet to rule on an earlier appeal of an injunction in another prominent Texas book banning case, Little versus Leno County. And they heard that oral argument more than four months ago. So I asked attorneys how this could happen, how you could have an administrative stay not based on the merits, essentially moot decision that a law was unconstitutional on the merits. And their reply was, that's Texas. That's just the way it works here. Anyway, I'm working on this. I'm talking to more lawyers. We're going to have more on this situation in the next week. But for now, I think the headline is, is that a law found to be unconstitutional on the merits in Texas is in effect based on a decision not decided on the merits and that has left booksellers and publishers in Texas in a very uncertain place. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Executive Editor, thanks for joining me on the program with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.